And Paul's desire, as he's ending this letter and writing to the believers in, in Corinth that he had spent years before time with, ministering to, establishing a church there, his desire for these Corinthian Christians was to see them growing in maturity, moving on into maturity in their walk with Christ and being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's what we all desire for one another and for ourselves, no doubt. See, there should be no place in the life of the believer for acting wickedly or doing evil. So Paul says, I pray that you do no evil. It's a pretty simple prayer, isn't it? And remember though, he's been writing uh, with concern to the church that when he comes back for his third visit, he's gonna find things maybe in disarray. He's gonna see people that have not been walking in the things that Paul's been instructing them in who have drifted away from the Lord and are doing wickedness or, or doing evil. He's afraid of that. In fact, we see that heart, that, that concern at the end of chapter 12 when he says in verse 21, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication and lewdness which they have practiced. So Paul's worried that these things that they once practiced are still kind of continuing on. So he prays, oh, I, I pray that you do no evil. This church has been ripe with compromise. And it's important to recognize that, that when there's compromise in character and conduct, there's confusion and conviction. Let me say it again. When there's compromise in character or conduct, there's gonna be confusion in conviction. Well, what do you mean by that, Brent? It means that when you have a believer that is walking ways that are contrary to God's ways, it brings about questions for those that are perhaps seeking, you know, Jesus that aren't there yet, maybe exploring Christianity. And when they see an example of somebody that's calling themselves a Christian, but is walking very contrary to God's ways, it's gonna bring confusion over like, well, is that what this is all about? Let's say you were to invite a friend or a neighbor to church one day, and you're walking them up to the sanctuary, and out front is me sitting in a lawn chair, you know, tank top, I got a reefer hanging out of my mouth, the Jack Daniels in one hand, and I'm cursing out some kid for looking at me funny. They're gonna walk by, they're gonna be like, oh, what's going on? And you're not gonna go, oh, don't worry about that, it's just our pastor, no big deal. You're like, yeah, this, they're gonna see, they go, what? That's the, the pastor? That's how he's living? Well, what's the, the church all about? That what? I thought there'd be something different here. And if it's just like the world, then what do I need this for, right? There's confusion in conviction. There's not this, you know, uh, walking in, in righteousness and walking in a way where there's, there's no evil, where there's compromise in character and conduct, there's gonna be confusion and conviction. We all know people that have kind of walked away or maybe, you know, not... Um, given the Lord a chance in their lives because of the example of another person where they go, oh, well, if that's what Christianity is all about, why do I need that? That's no different than how I'm living already right now. Why do I need Christianity if that's what it means? And so Paul says, oh, I pray to God that you do no evil, that you begin to, to model this life that has been so radically changed and transformed in and through Jesus Christ. That's his prayer and it should be our prayer, not just for one another, but for ourselves. Pray, Lord, I wanna walk in a way that 
exemplifies that life that I've been given in and through you that walks in, in righteousness and holiness. It's pursuing these things and not the, the things of the world by which there can be that, that mark or identity of evil. I wanna be far from that. I wanna walk in a way that's pursuing holiness. And, and Paul isn't praying this for any kind of selfish reason. He's not looking to have something benefit him through this, right? Because he says here, not that we should appear approved. Now, Paul's been having to wrestle with these things through the writing of 2 Corinthians because there's been false apostles that have moved into the church and tried to corrupt things that Paul's, and, and try to, you know, um, uh, just drag Paul through the mud and discredit him. So Paul's having to contend with these things. And, and Paul oftentimes would hold up the believers in Corinth and say, listen, you know, if I'm not a true apostle and I didn't bring the, the right message to you, then what does that say about you guys? You've all followed the gospel that I shared. You've been seeing your lives change. So what does it mean then if, if I'm not a true apostle and I'm not giving the right gospel? What does it say about you? But here Paul is not trying to hold them up for his own benefit, he's saying, listen, I desire nothing more than to see you guys walking in truth and following the Lord and pursuing Him and what He has for your life. It's not about me. I'm not looking to gain from this. It's not about my approval by any means. Paul, by any, any means, Paul simply knows that living life for Jesus set apart from the world and set apart from Him is going to be the most blessed, joyful life you can live. Living your life at the center of God's will, what He has for you, and that is to be walking in, in righteousness and holiness. Living that life is not gonna be boring. Some people think, oh man, if I yield my life to Jesus, I gotta give up all this fun stuff and my life is gonna be really boring. You know, I gotta maybe wear a robe, maybe do chants or something like, what is this? Some people have some weird views about what it's like to, to live for Jesus. But some people think that's just gonna be boring. No, listen, let me tell you. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we say, Lord, I wanna live according to your will, according to what your word of God says, that's gonna be the most exciting, joyful life to be lived because it's living it according to how God, the author of life has described you or, or called you to live. It's gonna be a blessing. And so Paul wants that for the people, not for his own benefit, but for them. He wants to see them pursuing these things. And it's amazing to see that heart of Paul, isn't it? So often in his prayers and in his writings, he, he showed a deep concern for others. He wanted others to know the greatness of God. If Paul was in prison, he's not writing saying, guys, help me out, man. You gotta rally around and get me out of here. You gotta do whatever you can, man. I need help. No, while he was in prison, he's praying for others. He's wanting to see others encouraged and built up in the faith. He's not looking at or being focused on his own needs. He's concerned about others. And that's a great way to live life. Because we so oftentimes get so inward focused, don't we? Where we're worried about all the things that we're dealing with and, and we have to you know, uh, uh, work through. And, and it can be very stressful, it can be very anxious, it can lead to a lot of uh, 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 stress or, or dismay. But that's what happens when we are constantly focused inwardly. But when we begin to say, Lord, I wanna pursue you. I wanna live according to your will. I wanna serve others. That's what you've called me to do. And when we begin to get a view that's outside of ourselves and onto other people and onto the Lord, man, it begins to just kind of alleviate a lot of the, the stress, the, the heaviness that we might be carrying and, and working through. Suddenly we just get freed from all that 
And Paul exemplified that life where he was just living for others. And that's the blessed, most content way to live life. Paul says in verse nine, or sorry, verse eight, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Paul was all about promoting truth and seeing people standing upon the truth. He knew that he couldn't come in with any other kind of, of message. He couldn't come in with any kind of falsehood because he knew the truth would ultimately win out. And it's the truth that he wants to be about and live for. So he knew he could do nothing that would go against the truth or could last against the truth. So Paul wanted always to live in the truth and point others in the truth. And he says in verse nine, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Now in using that word we, when he says, for we are glad when we are weak, he's, He's referencing most likely his you know, fellow laborers in the gospel, those that oftentimes would accompany him on his travels and, and be ministering with him. He's talking about the other true apostles that you know, were with him. And he says, listen, we're glad. If we are seen as weak in your eyes, well, we're okay with that if it leads to you being strong. And again, not strong in self, but strong in the Lord. Paul is more than willing to present himself in that way so that others could be strengthened through that kind of example. You know, it's, it's a philosophy that I've often tried to employ here as a pastor at Riverside. Many of you have seen, you know, uh, apparent weaknesses in my life, you know, a poor usage of the English language, not being able to say experience properly, perhaps in inability to do simple math, all, you know, weaknesses that I've been happy to project for you to build you uh, and strengthen all of you selflessly is, uh, okay, uh, I don't know, but uh, seriously, Paul's already pointed out that in his weakness, remember 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, in his weakness, Christ's strength was made, what, perfect. In my weakness, it's Christ's strength that is made perfect. Paul knew and understood, and he lived this out, by which he knew when I am weak, well, it, it leads me to my insufficiency, but ultimately it leads me to Christ's all-sufficiency. When I'm weak, I realize I can't do it on my own. I can't manage it, and that's where we should always be. We should never think, oh, it's okay, God, I got this. You don't need to worry about it. I got this, Lord, I'll take care of this. We live that way oftentimes, don't we? But we have to recognize in, in humility, not false humility, but in true humility, go, you know what? I'm nothing apart from Christ. I need him. And when we recognize our weakness, it leads us to seeing our insufficiency, but ultimately Christ's all sufficiency that's at play in our lives and that we need to daily depend on. That's what Paul desired for this church, that they would see and live with that newfound dependency on the Lord. That's how we need to live each and every day, my friends. Walking in, in weakness, but so that his strength can be made perfect in our lives. And Paul knows that as they learn to depend on Christ, this moves them into greater maturity as believers. Notice this is what Paul is praying for. This also, we pray, that you may be made complete. And you may be made complete. Now that word is translated in different ways in other translations. That word complete is translated in the King James Version as perfection. It's translated in 
the ESV as restoration, and that's interesting. Translated in the NLT as mature. And that's Paul's heart here is that this church here is growing in the things of the Lord. See, sin, sin has broken them, ravished them. It's left them very desolate. But he prays that they'd be restored, made complete. He prays that they'd be made perfect. And, and don't get me wrong, this is not talking about spiritual or sinless perfection. It's talking about spiritual maturity, growing in the things of the Lord. You know what it's like when you have kids, those of you that have had kids or, or have kids right now that are like, you know, little toddlers, you know that they can be quite selfish, demanding, whiners, right? The list goes on. You love them, but you know, if they're still carrying on in that way when they're in their 20s or 30s, you got some issues. If they're like crying over every little thing that goes wrong in their lives when they're 30 years old, you're going to be like, dude, you've got to pick things up here, man. You got to mature here. You don't expect them. We don't give them a pass when our toddlers grow up into adulthood and they still carry themselves on like they did when they're toddlers. We don't give them a pass. We go, this is not right. This is not good. It should be maturing. And yet so often we kind of can, with one another as believers, give each other a pass. Oh, well, you know what? Yeah, they've been a Christian for 10 years. Yeah, still they're, they're, they're struggling with this and they're doing that. But you know what? Uh, in time, you know, no, we want to encourage people like this is not normal behavior. As believers, we should be pursuing the things of the Lord, the things of righteousness and holiness, and we should be progressing and maturing in our walk with the Lord. That's not said as a heavy or as a legalistic, by no means do I mean any of it that way, but that should be the natural byproduct as we are, are, are serving the Lord and, and, and learning of him and growing in him. That should just be the natural byproduct that we now are walking in a manner where we're, we're pleasing the Lord, as, as Paul said, doing what is honorable to the Lord. Now, here's the thing. As we look at our own lives, and maybe some of you are going, you know, I've, I've really matured. I, I, I can say, I can say, you know, I've matured from where I was. But can I say that I've reached full maturity? Some of you would say, absolutely not. I thank you for your brutal honesty there. But, um, but none of us can say, I've reached full maturity. I've arrived. I've read through the Bible like five times. I've been to church my whole life, man. I've reached the pinnacle. There's no more progression for me to go on in. None of us can say that. Would you agree? None of us can say that this side of eternity because we're continually being made in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we won't reach that until we see him face to face in eternity in heaven. So until that day, we go, man, I want to continue to grow in the Lord. This is not about earning salvation, trying to do better. No, this is just about simply abiding in Christ and allowing his spirit just to lead us in these things and to, uh, again, unless we're abiding in the vine, we're not gonna bear any fruit. It's about being connected. It's not about working and striving. It's about just being connected to the vine and, and, and growing in maturity. It's a natural byproduct. But none of us have arrived. We keep continuing on. That, that gap between us and the Lord must ever be narrowing 
in our lives here today. That's, that's the heart, the desire that we should have in these things. Verse 10, therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification, not for destruction. Paul's kind of thankful that he's you know, writing these things out, putting down on paper, and kind of preparing them before he comes to them so that he doesn't have to come with any kind of sharpness. If he doesn't see things uh, in line, doesn't want to come and have to give a strong word of rebuke to them. He's writing it down so they would be prepared. He wants to come in love and grace. He wants to be for the edification and not for destruction. That's Paul's heart. Now, the false apostles over in there, I mean, they were not about that. They were very legalistically legalistic. They were very, uh, you know, demanding, putting heavy burdens on, on people. And it was ultimately destroying people, not building them up. Paul wants to build people up. But he knows there are times where maybe, perhaps, we need to kind of destroy some things, uh, knock some things down that are impeding our growth, get things out of the way so that we can build up on the right foundation and see a solid life being built in Jesus Christ, solid and stable, fully established in Christ. But Paul's heart is building up, establishing them for their edification and not for their destruction. He goes on to say in verse 11 now, finally, brethren, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. I love how Paul ends a lot of his letters. He just kind of oftentimes would just go in like this, you know, rapid fire. Like, let me just get every little bit of uh, stuff I can in there that maybe I've missed in a letter. Like he just, in very quick, succinct kind of statements, just says all these great, you know, words of exhortation. And in the close of this letter, he leaves us with, with four really good exhortations for us. But before we get into those, I want you to focus on this word, farewell. This is a, a good word. Not, not, not saying that saying goodbye is a, is a good thing. Some of you may, may really love to be able to say goodbye to some people and just move on. But um, I'm not saying this is a, a good, it's a good word in the way that it's uh, translated here. Now, it's the Greek word, kairos, and it's translated only this way, in 2 Corinthians 13, it's translated with the word farewell only this time, but that word kairos is used 76 times in the New Testament, and 46 of those times, or sorry, 74 times, 74 times, okay, 46 times in the New Testament, that word kairo, that's translated farewell here, is translated rejoice. I like that. So most of the time we see that word Cairo, it's being used as the word rejoice. In other words, as Paul is wrapping things up in his letter, as hard as it's been to address some of the things he's needed to for the church, for their edification and building up, for their correction, to see them growing in maturity, as hard as it's been to address some of those things, he wants this church to rejoice. Guys, rejoice. See, why can they rejoice? Because God hasn't cast them aside. There's still grace and reconciliation found in the Lord. He doesn't want them now hanging their heads in, in shame or discouragement like, oh man, that letter really took it out of me, man. Paul really came down heavy on us. Paul doesn't want that kind of attitude emerging from the center. He wants them to rejoice because in the Lord, there's always room to come and continue to grow in him and to rejoice. How about you? Are you rejoicing today in what you have in Christ? Now that word Cairo is used again in Philippians 4, 4, when Paul says, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. He uses it twice there. Rejoice in the Lord always. And Paul's like, and just in case you missed that, let me say it again. Again, I'll say rejoice. I want you to catch this, that you can be people that are filled with joy and rejoicing. Paul says that this is something we should always be doing. Well, what about when I have bad days or I'm really discouraged? What if I face a pretty heavy tragedy? Here's the great thing. When our lives are rooted in Christ, no matter what we go through, we have reason to rejoice always because whatever may come against us, we know it's temporary and even our afflictions are working something good in light of the promise of eternity. That's exactly what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 that he referenced so often in this letter and, and just kind of talking about his own experiences in life. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction... Did you catch that? It's light, my friends. Whatever difficulty you might be in, it's a light affliction. Because this life is so temporary. It, it's, it's, it's minor. It's like a, uh, James says that our lives are but a vapor. Our existence here in this world is not our, 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 our full or, or real existence. We have the, the privilege, the joy, and the hope of eternity. So whatever we're experiencing in this life, it's temporal and it is but a vapor. It's a light affliction, Paul says, which is but for a moment and it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, when we arrive in heaven one day, we're gonna see all that the Lord had prepared for us, all that he makes us. And we're gonna look at our lives here on this earth and we're gonna go, I can't believe I was whining, complaining about that. I can't believe I let that affect me in that way. Those things were minor. That was a light affliction, which was just but for a moment in comparison to what I have now in and through Jesus and what we already have in and through him, the hope of heaven, the promise of eternity. It doesn't get any better than life in Jesus and life with Jesus. He's worth, guys, whatever trials this world could throw at us. And because he secured my salvation, I can rejoice. I have reason to rejoice. You have reason to rejoice when your lives are in Christ, no matter what you experience. Well, here's these four exhortations that Paul concludes with. And putting these into practice ensure our continued rejoicing. First of all, Paul says, hey, exhortation number one, become complete. Now that word is a little different than the word complete that we saw in verse nine. This word complete is the Greek word katartizo. Katartizo, where, uh, you know, we get our word um, cauterize from. And the idea here uh, of katartizo in the Greek means to mend, to mend that which is broken or rent. It means to repair or to complete. Now, these, these exhortations, interestingly, have in common that they're related to the church and to the, the completion, the, the restoration of the church as a whole. Yeah, they're directed to individuals to live out, but it's for the purpose of the church being made whole together. That's how Paul is closing this letter with instruction and encouragement for the benefit of the church as a whole. Because that church here in Corinth, I mean, again, being in a, in a rough city, people struggling with sin and, and, and just, you know, abuses going on in the churches we've seen as we go through First and Second Corinthians. This church has had a lot of fractures in it that need setting. There's a lot of holes 
that need to be mended. This word katartizo, interestingly, is the same word that's used in Matthew 4, 21, where it talks about the disciples who are mending their nets, that are katartizo, their nets. They're, they're, the nets have been cast out, fish have come in, broken some of those nets apart, and these nets need to be mended together so that it can be whole and functional and useful again. That's how Paul is saying for each of us now become complete and allow that completion to affect the whole church where there might be holes, where there might be, you know, things that have been broken. Let's see things come together in restoration, in mending, in healing, coming together for the benefit of one another. Listen, is there brokenness in you that's preventing you from fellowshipping in the church? Are you causing unity to be stifled by perhaps holding on to a, a, a grudge or, or brokenness. Listen, Paul says, it's time. Become complete. Restore that which is broken. Be made whole in and through Jesus. Don't hold any longer to hurts or to fractures. Come together in grace and love and allow the body to become complete. That's what Paul is seeking. And then secondly, he says this, be of good comfort. See, that church has, again, had to endure a, a letter that's had some strong words in it at times, but it was, again, for their good. It was to edify, not destroy, as we saw in verse 10. So Paul says, church, I want you to be a good comfort. Don't, don't be discouraged. Don't walk away, you know, bitter or upset. No, comfort one another. Be encouraged. That word comfort is the Greek word parakaleo, which means to like call to one side. Paul is calling out to the church saying, hey, I want you guys to come along. I'm not, I'm not driving you. I'm not pushing you away. I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to my side because as I want to walk in this way, I want you as well to follow that example and, and to walk side by side in the things of the Lord. That's what Paul is praying. Be of good comfort. And so encourage edify again one another in these things for your benefit. Then thirdly, he says, be of one mind. Now, Paul's not calling the church to uniformity. He's not saying, I want you guys all to be exactly the same, dress the same. I want you to think the same kinds of things. That's not what Paul is calling them to. That'd be a cult otherwise, right? That's not what Paul has for the church. But what does it mean then to be of one mind. Now, we may think it means to find the right mind and follow that mind. Who's got the best mind here? Let's let that mind be the one that really kind of leads us on. No, that's not what I mean, but it's not too far off from that, actually. See, the problem is I tend to think that my mind is the right mind. <laughs> my mind is the one that, let's follow what I'm thinking Let's follow what I want to do. That's what I oftentimes think, but I'm sure there's a number of you that would agree with that. Not that my mind's the right mind, but that your mind is the right mind. You're going, no, 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 Pastor Brent. No, not your mind, my mind. Let's, let's go with what I'm thinking here for church. That's how we oftentimes function and think. But again, it's not about who's got the best idea or the best mind. It's about simply having the, the right mind, which is the mind of Christ. That's what we're called to follow. And see, when we have the mind of Christ, then we can begin to be of one mind and live in so much greater unity because we're no longer going, no, it's about what I want. It's about going, what's Christ have for us? 
What's his heart? What's his mind on these things? Paul would say in Philippians 2, verses 4 to 5, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And Paul went on to lay out this great kenosis passage in Philippians 2, where Christ emptied himself, gave himself even to the point of death on the cross for the, the betterment of others. That's the mind of Christ. Not about selfishly desiring and caring about what you want, but going, I want to have the mind of Christ that, that serves, that, that seeks to, to build up and bless others. That's what Paul desires for the church here. So it's having that mind of Christ. And then number four, he says this, live in peace. Hey, friends, we are called to live in peace with one another. That's something the Bible commands us to do. You know, people say, uh, the church would be great if it wasn't for all the people, right? Maybe you said that from time to time. That's like saying, my marriage would be awesome if it wasn't for my spouse. You're like, you don't have a marriage without a spouse. We recognize the church is the people, whether you like it or not. If you're part of the church, you're connected to a group of people which is called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We are called to walk in, in unity and in harmony together. We're called to live in peace with one another. Yeah, people may irritate you. They might frustrate you, maybe even hurt you. But as Paul says in Romans, as much as depends on you, live in peace. It's a much lighter and enjoyable way to live when we're just at peace with one another, even in spite of what they may have done to us. Holding grudges, only weighs us down and prevents us from living this rejoicing life that we're called to live. Live in peace, my friends. Understand the great peace that we've been brought into by God. How we now are at peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have no reason now to be holding on to things that are preventing peace with one another. And we live in peace. Now, what's interesting here is that in this farewell, Paul is not exhorting the church now to, hey guys, I've laid out four exhortations. I want you to take that home and just kind of ponder that, pray about it. Maybe, you know, these are some things you might want to put into practice. No, he doesn't say that. He says, guys, be come complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. What Paul is saying is, just do it. Just do it. Don't, don't, don't think about it. Don't, th this isn't something that you need to go through some kind of schooling or course for. You don't need training in this. You have Christ living in you. You have everything you need right now to put these things into practice. So do it. Be it. That's what Paul is saying to the church here. And notice the outcome. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I love that. Now, you might go, isn't he already with us? Yeah, he is. But you see, living this life and putting these things into practice causes us to be abiding in him all the more where his presence, his goodness and his grace is known in an experienced kind of reality where it's not just something we know that, okay, I know God says he'll, he'll be with us, but when we're living these things out, we're walking in such 
closeness and fellowship with the Lord. We're, again, we're abiding in Christ by which we just know his presence is there. Because we know that when we walk away from the things of the Lord or when we engage in sin, we quickly realize, man, my fellowship with the Lord's been cut off. My fellowship's been cut off. It's not that we're not saved any longer, but it's that sin has impeded that fellowship. But when we're walking in these things and the truth and the commandments that, that his word gives us, suddenly we realize, man, I'm just walking in constant, just abiding in Christ. I'm enjoying the presence of the Lord. There's nothing that's getting in the way or impeding that. The God of love and peace is with us. Now, verse 12, it's what you've all been waiting for. Greet one another with a holy kiss. If you could just uh, turn to each other. We're gonna, um, we're gonna try this. Uh, no. Um, I will say as a young as a young adolescent growing up in church, this is a wonderful verse to share with the youth group girls. It, it didn't always go over the way, and there was definitely nothing holy about my motivation in that, but uh, that's yesterday, a uh, long time ago. Of course, we need, when we see a verse like that, we, we need to recognize kind of the, the context of the, of the day and the customs that were in use, because when they gather, like say in the synagogue, men would sit on one side, women would sit on another side, and so it was, it was men that would come and greet men as they would come together and they would greet each other with a holy kiss and the, the women would come together and greet each other with a holy kiss. I mean, you, you do that today. You walk into church and you see men kissing men. You're going to go, well, this is weird. This isn't, this is either liberal or weird. I don't know what the, uh, we'll, uh, we'll move on. But, uh, so this is kind of a, a customary practice in, in the day. And it's still very much uh, a custom in some Middle Eastern cultures, right? Okay, got a brother that loves to give me a, a holy kiss here at church. And it's okay, because I know the custom, uh, the culture behind it, right? And so, um, so we today, typically, instead of a holy kiss, you know, we go with a holy handshake, maybe a holy hug uh, for those that like that sort of thing. Be aware and make sure you're not imposing that on some people. Not everybody loves hugs. Uh, Amen from a couple of you, but um, so yeah, that's kind of how we, we treat that here today. But what it is, is it's, it's, it's this sign is coming together in, in unity and in togetherness and accepting one another and just showing that love for each other. That's the idea here, whether it's a handshake, a hug, it's just like, man, you know, we're, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord and we just love to greet one another with that joy and, and fellowship together. Lastly, verse 13 and 14. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Ogilvy says in his commentary, long before the church developed the formal doctrine of the Trinity, the Apostle Paul was using the three persons of the Trinity in his benedictions. He said goodbye with a prayer for the presence of the lives or in the lives of the Corinthians of the grace that finds its source in Christ and the love that God inspires and the partnership of life that the Holy Spirit creates. Even in his final words, Paul is issuing a call to a celebration of the life that is in Christ. And here, it's really the only place in the New Testament where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned together in this kind of, of blend, uh, a blessing and, and benediction. Paul certainly wanted the Corinthian church to be blessed in all that God is. And that's the amazing thing, because as we see this, we're remembering the grace of Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, that we could be forgiven forgiven of sin, freed from sin. 
we are, are reminded of the love of God here. The great love of God, which 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. This great love of the Father. And then we remember here and are reminded of the sweet communion that's supplied to us in and through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is poured out at Pentecost to form the church, the bride of Christ. And that word communion is used elsewhere. It's a Greek word, koinonia, which speaks about this great intimate kind of fellowship together, having everything in, in common. And that fellowship and communion is not a natural thing. It's supernatural, provided for us by the Holy Spirit, by which he brings us into fellowship and relationship with the Trinity. The Trinity that's enjoyed community and fellowship from, from you know, beginning of time. And now we're invited in to this fellowship that they've always enjoyed. We're invited in to experience that now for ourselves, the sweet communion and fellowship with a Jesus who shows grace, a God that shows love, the Holy Spirit that just binds all these things together in sweet fellowship and communion. Praise the Lord for that. Let us be those that are continually growing and maturing in Jesus, walking in love and grace and peace together as we serve him and as we remain watchful for his coming. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this church. I pray that, Lord, our, our, our fellowship will always be sweet, that we'll be those that are living in peace, being a comfort to another, being of one mind and being complete. Lord, fully restore that there be nothing that's causing brokenness or things to be be disconnected may there be just such unity here in this place and may we be those that that come alongside one another to continue to 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 grow in maturity together being formed in the likeness of jesus christ that's our prayer and our desire so continue that work in us as we yield and surrender to you on a daily basis lord we love you thank you for loving us we pray this in your name amen